do you reckon we're different to people around us? We're all the same. Don't act. Okay, so we don't put on we don't put on a pretense. We just kind of be we're real. Okay, other ways we might be David. Yeah, there's hope. Some people might say we um, we parent differently, or we have different values for our money. Um, so in the world, different is kind of praised when it means that you're an individual. You're like standing out from the crowd and challenging the status quo. But it can also be quite lonely and you can, if you think differently about things, you can also be ostracized and seem a bit weird because everybody else doesn't do those sorts of things. Uh, so for me, when I was growing up as a Christian, um, different meant um, the kind of music I listened to and the kind of ways that I pursued relationships and, and maybe the kind of career that I thought about. And now it's about parenting differently and um, choosing things, um, how we spend our money and, and also about having hope. Um, and that is what um, Paul says, um, so actually Peter says in um, in one of his letters is that different means we've been called out of darkness into the light of Christ. Um, but as we begin to explore what we started with in Amy's talk last week, this is really full of tension in what we might call a post-Christian society. And she brought up that term, post-Christian um, society. We didn't have time to delve into it, so I'm just going to um, explore it a little bit before we get started into Daniel 3. Um, and I think over the last couple of decades, probably two or three decades in particular, the ground underneath our feet has moved and we are probably living in what we could call a post-Christian society. And by that I don't mean that there aren't any Christians left in the West or even in a city like Winchester, you're all here. Uh, there's lots of followers of Jesus, as we know from our, our activity with Winchester Churches Together. I don't mean that it's a thing of the past. We're here, we're alive, we're healthy in pockets um, all over the world. But what we do mean by post-Christian is that the secularization of Western culture as a whole is pretty much near to complete. So what happened decades ago at kind of an academic level has over the last 20 or 30 years kind of moved into the popular level. And so now if you're an average 10-year-old kid growing up on Star Wars and Xbox and uh, Pokemon Go, it's easy to just write God out of your mind and live a pretty secular life. You don't really think about church because why would you? Um, your parents don't go to church and it's not in your frame of reference. This is the reality for a lot of my um, kids' friends. And, or as my um, six-year-old's, whoops, my six-year-old's best friend said to her, we don't believe in God, we believe in science. So I told Annabelle to say, we believe God invented science and she, see what she had to come back with that. Uh, she hasn't said anything yet. Um, so the question is, how do we as followers of Jesus live in a post-Christian world? While it's a relatively new question here in the West, thankfully it's not a new question um, in the global historic church. So to have off, we're going to just have a quick look at this. Sorry, there's, I'll read the text, there's quite a lot, but just so you know I'm not making this up. Um, this is a writing from the second century. Uh, most scholars date it right around 120 or 130 AD, so about one generation after the New Testament was written. 
Um, it's a letter from a disciple of Jesus to an academic elite. Um, we think the tutor of Marcus Aurelius. And he writes this, for Christians are not distinguished from hum the rest of humanity by country or by speech or by dress. For they do not dwell in cities of their own or use a different language or practice a peculiar life. But while they dwell in uh, Greek or barbarian cities, according to each person's lot has been cast and follow the customs of the land in clothing and food and other matters of daily life. Yet the condition of citizenship which they exhibit is wonderful and admittedly strange. They live in countries of their own, but simply as a sojourner. They share the life of citizens. They endure the lot of foreigners. Every foreign land is to them a homeland, and every homeland a foreign land. They spend their existence upon the earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. And this is what it is like to be followers of Jesus. He's saying that what sets us apart is, is not our country, whether you're Canadian or British or Australian or German, not your ethnicity, the color of your skin, your language, uh, not the way you dress, your diet, whether you're a vegan or an omnivore or choose to eat an ice cream only diet, something I'm hoping to pursue uh, next week when I'm on holiday. Um, what sets you and I apart as followers of Jesus is our way of life. But this means that we live in attention. On one hand, if you're, if you're a citizen, just say like me, um, of the UK, but you are, have um, dual citizenship, so I'm Canadian and British. Um, I am a foreigner technically in Britain because you don't have things like Timbits and good peanut butter, but... Um, I'm technically a resident alien, but because I have that um, duality where I'm also British, when I go to Canada, I'm also a foreigner. Um, I say things like, well, I don't actually, but if I pronounce the word tomato or if I um, said garage instead of garage, I would be looked upon very strangely. And that is the, it is like that as followers of Jesus. We are citizens of heaven living on earth. Um, and as a Christian, or as followers of Jesus, our loyalty is not to the kingdom of, um, of Britain or to the city of Winchester. Our loyalty is to the kingdom of heaven. And this tension is on um, a big scale is what Daniel 3 is all about. So we are going to go into um, the text. Um, and this story is um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or um, as Michael always says, your shack, my shack, and a bungalow. Or this quite endearing slide, I quite liked the sad rat, mean hat, and a bendy goat. Um, anyway, we're going to read it. It's a little bit on the long side. If you've got your phone or your Bible, then it's um, Daniel 3. We're going to start at verse 1. So, um, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image, a statue of gold, 60 cubits high. So a cubit is about a foot and a half. Uh, so think about 90 feet, um, 90 feet high and six cubits wide and set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. 
Then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, not sure I would know what sound that made, um, the lyre, hype, harp, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into the blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the this, so, sorry, the zither, it kind of got me stuck, so I thought you might like to know what it was. Um, it is uh, in the class of a stringed instrument, and it's a German rendering of the Greek word um, sithara, from which the modern word guitar derives. And what you might also not have known is you can get one on eBay. They kind of range from about 40 pounds up to like 40,000, so depending on how cool you want your zither to be. Anyway, there you go. Um, the lyre, the harp, and all kinds of musics, and all the nations and the peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of God that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So if you were here last week and heard the beginning of Amy's talk, you'll know that King Nebuchadnezzar is the most powerful man on earth. He is uh, the head of a global military superpower, and he makes this image or statue. Um, so notice the writer doesn't say exactly what the statue is of. It could be of Nebuchadnezzar. It could be one of the Babylonian gods. I'm not sure that's completely accurate. If, uh, I don't think it's a photographic representation, so you can um, take your own interpretation. Um, the vast majority of scholars argue it's some kind of image or statue of Babylon itself, the nation state. So a national symbol for Babylon, what they're worshipping and what they're bowing down to is the greatest nation on earth of all time and what it stands for. And if you think about the West and you think, well, we don't do things like that anymore. We've so moved on from those ancient customs. We do have some cousins across the water who have a very big uh, statue that represents their nation. And while they don't bow down to it, um, it's, it's something that is idolized, this culture of, um, of freedom and liberty. And while that's not a bad thing at all in itself, it's interesting about how we align ourselves with values. So in the book of Daniel, they, um, they are bowing down and all of Babylon is spread out in front of the image. And this is the phrase, the meaning of the phrase that he keeps repeating, the satraps, prefects, governors, all of that. It is um, a kind of list of who's who from Babylon all over the empire. Um, so Babylonian, Egyptian, Assyrian, and everyone's there and they all bow down, um, or do they? If we look back now at verse eight, at this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, oh, may the king live forever. Now there's someone who really wants to get on the good side of uh, the king. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into the blazing furnace. But there are some Jews who you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of God you have set up. So here we go. In a sea of people, maybe tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people, there are three Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they refuse to bow down. 
Now, they're pretty quiet about it. They don't protest. Um, there's not a massive foghorn or a rally or a march on Whitehall or the Houses of Parliament. They don't like take to Twitter with the hashtag never Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, there's none of that. And do you know what? The king doesn't even see it at first. Um, it's the Chaldeans who, if you remember, they're essentially the co-workers of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And we can assume here that maybe this is some office politics gone really badly wrong. The Chaldeans are jealous because the Hebrews, not the Babylonian men, they have risen to the upper echelons of the government. So it's a chance to kind of rat them out and get them into trouble and maybe take over their positions. Um, so uh, Daniel 3.13 Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not worship my gods or the image I have set up? He doesn't wait for an answer. If you see there, he just assumes they're going to be grateful for the second chance he's giving them. Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, there we go again, and the harp, pipe, all kinds of music. If you're ready to fall down and worship the image I've made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. Then what God is able to rescue you from my hand? Talk about megalomania. He is going, I'm more powerful than your God. And notice that anger, the hostility, the boasting from the political leaders. I'm so thankful we've evolved past that in modern day politics. Uh, into verse 16. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego applied, uh, replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. See how calm they are. They're not yelling or screaming. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of God you have set up. So they're, they're not disrespectful. They just say, okay. They, they recognize his authority. They say, yes, you are the king. You have authority of us as citizens in this country. But we are exercising our non-participation right by saying, yep, you can do this. We'll be thrown into the fire, but we believe our God will rescue us. So yes, we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold. They're saying, I'm sorry, but no. So if we just keep in mind, this is not the 20th, first century Western secular world where everyone has the right to express themselves how they choose. This is 6th century BC in the ancient Near East. Uh, this is a, a world where spirit, spirituality and religion and politics and a whole bunch of other stuff are all mixed together. There's no separation of church and state. That's not even in their worldview at all. Um, religion uh, feeds into the politics and it's all together. The king, the gods, of nation, uh, the gods of Babylon, the nation of Babylon, that is what is giving Nebuchadnezzar the authority. And it's all put in together in some kind of um, mush pot. And these three Jews in the story, they're not loud or disrespectful or snarky, but make no mistake, to not bow down to the image of Babylon was not only a deeply subversive act, but it was a threat to the status quo. 
Um, which is why in verse 19, uh, we see Nebuchadnezzar. So it says, he was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude towards them changed. Um, in, a, in the amplified version, it says, his whole countenance towards them changed. And you can just imagine his face contorting with rage. And he ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual. And we think that might be a literary way of saying extra hot. Um, He commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, and turbans, have you noticed that this writer really likes lists? If you've just finished your English GCSE, or maybe for those of us who it's been a little bit uh, longer than this summer, um, you might be able to tell me that the function of listing is to really drive home a point, is to emphasize uh, the attention to detail. And I want you to keep that at the back of your mind because we're gonna come back to that. So he's wearing all of their clothes, their trousers, their turbans and other clothes and they were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace was so hot Um, that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. But we all know that's not the end of the story. Um, King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet, this is in verse 24, in amazement, and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that were tied up and thrown in the fire? And they replied, Certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see one, two, three, four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like the son of the gods. Um, And the question always is, who is that fourth man? And Christian tradition um, often says, oh, it's Jesus. Um, Although there has been some controversy whether or not it's Jesus or an angel even in our own house this week we were debating on whether it could be the a pre-incarnate version of um, Jesus appearing or whether it's an angel but um, and there's lots of different commentary you can read if you're interested Um, but I think what it physically was doesn't matter Um, whether it was an appearing of Jesus before he was born or some kind of angel or something else the point is that God was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego right in the middle of the fire. So in verse 26, it says, Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire and the satraps, prefects, governors, and the royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and they did not smell of fire. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So now he starts to worship the one true God. uh, Who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him. And listen to this. They defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any God other than their own. So now he has respect for them. Um, Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble. No other God can save in this way. So he's still a little far from the heart of God, perhaps. 
but um, it's essentially legal protection that he's giving them. It's a way to legalize the Jewish worship of God in the Babylonian empire, and that is a good thing. And then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So there's Jesus, or the angel, or holding the hands of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So, okay, what is the story about exactly? Um, Well, just to clarify, this isn't just a children's story. Um, How many of you, just a quick hand, grew up in church? Okay, so a fair few of you. Um, And how many of you are old enough to remember the felt board? Yeah, so... um, I'm sorry, Stephen, the video Jesus Bible story adventure has nothing on the iPad. iPad stories has nothing on this felt board. So um, this one, I I really remember this. So we've got the golden image and King Nebuchadnezzar looking really cross and the other people bowing down in worship. And then there's Jesus in the fire. And it was a good one. Um, But at its heart, it's not just a children's story with those catchy, funny names. It's about not participating in the status quo on a really public level. It's thinking about the things that we do on an automatic level and questioning them, and then maybe thinking about how do we live different when our reputation is on the line. And I think that there's three things that the Lord is speaking in this story today. Um, Well, there could probably be more than three for you, but that's what we're going to do this morning. Um, So, number one, Um, Sometimes we serve God by non-participation in our culture, so being in the world, but not of it. Um, Two, God is with us in the fire, and three, uh, God is in the details. So non-participation. There's a lot of times where, I'm gonna come to this story in just a second. There's a lot of times in our culture we, um, without thinking, participate in it. And sometimes those things are good, um, like um, aiming for justice, for for protecting the rights of people, um, for um, um, protecting individuals. Um, But it is, if we're not careful, very easy to misplace those loyalties um, in those things and not um, uh, making sure our loyalty is focused to Jesus and the kingdom. Um, and there's a lot we can learn, whether, um, whether we're living under empire, whether that's the shadow of Babylon, or the shadow of Brexit, or um, Sierra Leone, or America, and that is, what is our response when those values clash with the kingdom of God? And if you're taking notes, this is probably the number one response. It's non-participation. It starts with really simple, ordinary acts of not participating. Um, So here is a very famous picture from World War II. You can see on the picture on the right, it's a massive crowd. And um, in, in red, this is a man called Gustav Werner. This photo was taken at his place of work a shipbuilding yard called uh, Blom and Voss, which the Nazis used for several of their um, ship launches. Um, He never raised his arm for the Nazi salute. Uh, From the beginning of the Nazi regime, this was his basic principle. If someone greeted him with a Heil Hitler, he answered with a simple Guten Tag. 
um, which means hello or good day. Um, and his son um, said, my mother often told me times about the, her anxiety that her husband would be imprisoned after he received several warnings for not doing this. And it was a miracle in her eyes that this did not happen. And this is his son speaking, saying, my father also told me that Adolf Hitler not only came to the launch where this picture was taken, um, but lots of other significant ship launches. Um, to prevent a loss of production, the propagandist launches were placed on a Sunday morning so that all the rest of the week they would be working. But because of that, Gustav refused not only the Nazi salute, but also he, um, he didn't show up at most of these because he said he should obey the laws of God rather than the laws of men. And he went to the Sunday morning service in this church. He explained no severe harm came to him from the Nazis because his boss, who summoned, even though his boss summoned and warned him several times, his boss valued him so much and his integrity so much that he protected him and um, insisted that his uh, employees of his caliber were protected and therefore he was repeatedly um, requested um, by the shipbuilding yard and was never sent to the front. Um, there's another story from World War II around the same time of André Trocmé, and this was in France. And if you know the story, he was a French Anabaptist pastor in the town of Le Chambon during the Nazi invasion. At one point, they got a letter from the Nazis saying they were to round up all the Jews in town and turn them over to the Nazis, um, where we assume they were going to send them to concentration camps. So instead, they sent back an official letter from the town um, Trockme wrote it, and this is a true story. He sent this to the Nazi party, and it reads, We have learned of the frightening scenes which took place three weeks ago in Paris where the French police, on orders of the occupying power, uh, Nazi Germany, arrested in their homes all the Jewish families in Paris to hold them. The fathers were torn from their families and sent to Germany. The children torn from their mothers who underwent the same fate as their husbands. And we are afraid that the measures of deportation of the Jews will soon be applied in our southern zone. And we feel obliged to tell you that there are among us a certain number of Jews. But we make no distinction between Jew and non-Jew. It's contrary to the gospel teaching. If our comrades, whose only fault it is to be born in another religion, receive the order to let themselves be deported or even examined, they would disobey the order received and we would try to hide them as best they could. We have Jews, you're not getting them. This is a true story. Uh, Trockme was later put in jail for his descent, but he did make it out of the war alive. And estimates say that he saved about 3,500 Jewish men, women, and children. And how did he do it? By not participating. Lots of other people would think they had no choice, but he said, I have a choice, I'm going to use it. Now that story is obviously really dramatic, and most of the time non-participation is far more ordinary and run of the mill. Um, in our own uh, English department at school, we have a tradition. Um, as a thank you, we always get a bottle of wine at Christmas and um, a book in the summer holidays from our head of department. Um, and sometimes they're good, both the wine and the books, um, and sometimes they aren't. Uh, I picked up my book that I got last week um, on Sunday night after, and this was after Amy's talk. I had finished one that I needed to read for next year's course. Um, and I thought, oh, this is good. Uh, my head of department, who is also one of my good friends, said, oh, it's a bit frivolous, but I think you'll like it. And I thought, oh, great, it'll be a bit of light reading. And I got through about three pages before there was all manner of swearing and drug use, and it was just horrible. 
And I thought, maybe I'll put it down for now. I thought, the children are around. I don't really want them to see me reading this. And then I had a nudge from the Holy Spirit. I'm not sure I want you to be reading this, he seemed to be saying. So I put it down. And then I thought, shall I just put it back on the bookshelf and forget about it? But I couldn't find peace with that either. I thought maybe I'd put it in the charity shop bag, which is by the front door. And then I thought, I didn't really want anybody else to read it either. So I put it in the bin. Um, And anyone who knows me in books will know that this is actually a really deliberate act of nonconformity. It was brand new and it was a gift, but it was also trash. And if it had been on TV, I would have switched it off straight away. Um, But because it was a present, I found it really difficult to throw away. And I know I'll have an even more difficult conversation with when my friend who gave it to me asks what I thought of it, especially since um, at school I am known for being like a true believer. So if anyone has any bright ideas about how I can break that to her gently, just see me after the service. I've done the first part. (laughs) So the second thing is God is in the fire with us. If we look closely and notice some of the details in the stories, the Chaldeans actually make up some of the stuff about the three Hebrews. Um, They say to Nebuchadnezzar, they pay no attention to you, which actually is not true because they are high up officials in the government. So they would be, have been, their whole job would be carrying out a lot of the things that Nebuchadnezzar wanted them to do. Um, And so when they say they pay no attention to you, it's really unjust. And this may happen to us. Our motives may be impugned or so that when we try to opt out or not participate in the things that God is asking us um, to come out of, other people will feel really uncomfortable around us. And we might seem weird or get left out of things or not invited to things we used to get invited to. And whatever the consequences are, whether that is being thrown in the fire metaphorically, hopefully not literally, we know that God is with us. And as we know from our series in Job, um, we have finished not too long ago, being a Christian or follower of Jesus doesn't exempt us from suffering, but Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit to comfort and guide us. We don't have to do it on our own. And one of the best ways to work through the conflicting emotions that this brings is to ask Jesus where he is for us in these situations and he will show you. And finally, God is in the details. When Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego came out of the furnace, nothing was harmed. Not a hair was singed. Now, if I leave my hair straighteners on for too long, I can singe my hair pretty easily. Um, And this detail too, they came out and there was no smell of fire on them. Um, Last week I was helping Annabelle organize her wardrobe and we pulled out a jumper we had taken camping three weeks ago. She worn it around the campfire and guess what? It still smelled like smoke. So this is a pretty amazing thing to be able to walk out of this experience and not have that smell of smoke lingering on them. And everyone saw their deliverance God didn't wait until everyone had gone and appeared to them. He was visible to them and with them and his glory was displayed because he was there with them while everybody else was there. There are times that God will use difficult situations in our lives to further enhance his glory and more people will know about who he is because of that visibility of the details. 
So as we think about how to respond today, um, I've left the interactive bit um, until now. And here are some um, ideas about how we can live different. What we're going to do over the next couple of weeks is invite you to think about one or two of these things. And um, next week we're going to ask, I think um, Will is doing the talk next week, um, and we're going to ask for a couple of mini reports. It doesn't have to be long, um, just one minute of something that you've tried. So um, examples of how we could live different. So uh, just to illustrate, I was preparing for this talk. Um, I was practicing it while our new windows and doors were being fitted. And I was in the only room in the house that was fit to kind of sit in, but it was right at the front of the house. And instead of closing the door to the front room, which was my impulse and my first instinct, I left it open just because maybe I thought maybe the window fitters and the builders needed to hear about the fiery furnace too. So here are a few things you could try. You could read your Bible at work, give someone a book by a Christian author, um, buy a stranger's coffee or tea, um, offer to meet a need like paying for someone's groceries or school uniform, publicly honour and encourage someone in front of their community, or invite a person to a church event. Those are not limited to. And just so you can uh, have some accountability, why don't you have a think about that and, and then uh, tell the person next to you which one you are going to do. So I have a minute to think and then 30 seconds to talk. You might be pleased to know that Nigel's risky move is going to be reading his Bible at work. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to say, I'll be public as well, I'm going to say I'm going to buy somebody's um, coffee. I think I'm going to do it when we go to, we're going away on Thursday. I'm going to do it at the airport, but doing that means that I'm going to have to make sure that we have enough time so we're not rushing and so we can do it deliberately. So it's going to take a bit of forethought. So just coming into land, we've given you some things to think about. Um, but as we're turning our hearts towards um, ministry this morning, um, I just felt there's a few things maybe um, that the Holy Spirit wanted to bring up. So maybe that you feel like there's something lingering on you, like that smoke on Annabelle's jumper maybe from the last time you went through a difficult time. And I felt like God wants to take that away from you just to wash it off and give you refreshing. Or maybe last week God started to nudge you about things he'd like you to opt out of um, or maybe opt into. And he's carrying on with those nudges today and he wants you to press in and to, to commit further. And maybe you need to feel God beside you today. You feel like there's a furnace burning around you and you just need to see Jesus in there with you. So we're going to close and invite the band back up. Um, and just, um, there's something here for everybody. There's something that God would like to say to you. So just as we close in prayer, I'll just invite the Holy Spirit to come. So Lord, we're so thankful for you. We're so thankful that you were and you are and you will always be. And you were with Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in that fire and you are with us in our fires. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and be present in this room. 
that you would increase our awareness of, of what you're saying to us and that you would give us ideas and strategies about how to advance your kingdom on earth. We ask for your kingdom to come even more in our hearts, Lord, and that we would respond to what you're doing today. In Jesus' name, amen. Shall we stand?